All right, welcome. Welcome to Coffee with Cornelius. We are joined today by Mark Kayoma. If you enjoy this type of contact, by the way, please hit the like button and subscribe if you want more. We have, as of today, been experiencing more than a week of protests stemming from the police killing of George Floyd. These protests, both violent and nonviolent, have highlighted questions of race, toleration, and historical injustices and the state's relationship with certain ethnic minorities. Joining me to discuss these questions is Mark Koyama, a professor of economics at George Mason University who specializes in religious and ethnic persecution in Europe, as well as comparative state development in Asia and Europe. Mark is from the UK originally, and he received his undergraduate and postgraduate degrees from the University of Oxford. He is a research fellow at the Center of Economic Research and Policy, a member of the F.A. Hayek program at in PPE at George Mason University and a senior scholar at the Mercatus Center. His latest book with Noel Johnson is Persecution and Toleration, The Long Road to Religious Freedom from Cambridge University Press. Mark, thank you for joining us. Hi, Cornelius. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you for joining. Mark, much of your work deals with Jews in, medi in medieval Europe and anti-Semitism. Uh, now, there is an image in people's minds of medieval Jews being uniformly and perennially persecuted by European lords. In your book, you kind of demolish this caricature. What was the true status of Jews at the time? So the case of Europe's Jewish communities is, um, is an interesting one. They're the longest lasting and best documented religious minority. So that's, that's one reason um, to study them, if, if no other. And their situation is somewhat unique. So the position of the Catholic Church kind of emerges from St. Augustine is that the Jews are are not to be forcibly converted, so not to be persecuted or, 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 or um, killed or forced to convert to Christianity, but their, their status should also be kind of lower than that of Christians. Uh, Jews are, are going to be witnesses for the fact they rejected Christ, and, and they're, going, they're going to be some Jews at the end of time, so we don't want to forcibly convert them. So that makes their situation a little bit different to that of pagans or other minorities, which we're going to, one's going to encounter in, in kind of European history. Um, so what was the true status of Jews in the Middle Ages? It's, it's important, I think, to make a, a temporal distinction. So the Middle Ages spans roughly a thousand years. Mm -hmm. The first part of the Middle Ages, so if you think about the period from the fall of the Roman Empire to the, roughly the Crusades, the Jewish communities are not explicitly persecuted uh, on a widespread scale. So there's, there's not much documentation of, um, of pogroms or the kind of virulent anti-Semitism which, which will emerge later. Um, Jewish communities, first and foremost, are, there are not that many Jews in many parts of Europe, but once the European economy starts reviving after the fall of Rome, Jewish communities are spreading and they're, they're actually quite flourishing. And for example, the Carolinian rulers of France and Germany sponsor uh, Jewish settlement and Jewish communities, and we'll talk about reasons why that is. Um, so, from a Jewish perspective, actually, a lot of uh, this is almost a golden age of rabbinical Judaism in the mm. like 10th, 11th, 12th century, um, and uh, culminating in the 13th century. Even though kind of the underlying Christian culture is kind of what we would call maybe anti Semitic or something anti, there's a lot of anti Judaism. So, the Jews are othered, they, they're a separate community. Um, but they're not necessarily being persecuted. This changes in the late Middle Ages. So often the turning point is seen as the Crusades. So the Crusades see the first kind of really bad series of, of pretty devastating pogroms in the Rhineland. Um, 
where many communities are destroyed, but um, more generally across Europe, the turning point is really at the end of the 13th and the 14th century. And then you do get a lot of pogroms, a lot of violence against Jews, the worst pogroms of a black, during the Black Death, uh, where mm-hmm. Jews blamed for the disease. So I would say the view uh, you described in your question, which is of the Jews being perennially persecuted, is something that emerges as a result of a historical process after kind of 1200, roughly, and culminates in a more or less expulsion of Jews from most of Western Europe, and we end up moving to Eastern Europe. Um, that's why you have large Jewish communities in, in you know, what's modern day Poland, or um, uh, kind of Eastern Europe. Now, what I would say, and this will get to your next set of questions, is this Jewish violence, the violence against um, Jews, which emerges in the late Middle Ages, can't just be a product of anti-Semitic kind of culture or kind of lingering anti-Judaism, which is a product of, of Christianity, because the Jews were actually flourishing for many centuries. So that's why to understand these pogroms or why violence against Jews kind of uh, escalated you need to understand the political economy and the the economic role Jews were playing in medieval society and we're going to get to that political economy story in a minute but first you mentioned that the Carolingian rulers actually sponsored Jews Uh, why were Jews seen as useful uh, to European rulers in particular yeah so that's a great question the To answer it, I have to develop the answer in a few stages. The first is that Jews have higher levels of education than most non-Jews in in, in the the Middle Ages. So after the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, literacy amongst lay people, amongst non-priests, really kind of collapses. So most people can't really read or write. Uh, The economy is pretty basic. Um, Agriculture is largely for subsistence. And and, the Jews remain a minority of people who, are, who maintain literacy. And the reason for this is documented in a very good book called The Chosen Few by uh, Marcelo Bodicini and Zivi Eckstein, where they basically say it's a historical accident. So the Jews in the ancient world, at the time of Christ, the Jews are not more literate or more educated than any other people in the Middle East. It's like, you know, there's some educated Jews, there are a lot of uneducated Jews, a lot of Jewish farmers. Um, but the, and the Jewish religion is centered around the temple, and the rabbinical Judaism is just one strand of Judaism which emphasizes the importance of, of reading. Uh, mm-hmm. But the devastation of the temple by the Romans in AD 70 uh, destroys all the other strands of Judaism, and the one remaining is rabbinical Judaism, where you don't need the temple, you can kind of study the Torah just in your own home or, or in, a, in a synagogue. And um, so Judaism becomes a literate religion. What, what remains of Judaism? A number of Jews plummets. Many people convert to uh, Christianity later or Islam or they cease being Jews. They become you know, pagans or just Roman citizens. Um, so, so numbers of Jews plummet and those who remain illiterate. And then when, when the European economy collapses with the fall of the Roman Empire, even, more, even fewer people remain Jews because literacy is costly. It's like a costly luxury to maintain literacy. But when the European economy recovers, around kind of the 10th, 11th centuries, actually this is going to favor uh, the Jews because they have maintained kind of relatively high standards of literacy. And they, they also have, um, kind of, by nature of being a minority, they have networks spread across different European cities and countries. So they have advantages in, in trade initially. Mm-hmm. And so they're merchants and traders during the Carolinian period. And then, um, particularly in the 11th and 12th century, you get this demand for credit because of the revival of trade. So essentially, 
Medieval trade really requires a lot of credit because you don't want to carry costly bullion, silver, long distances. You need credit. Uh, but the Christian church prohibits usury, so it prohibits charging interest on loans. This is one reason, not the only reason, why Jews end up becoming more and more important to have money lending and credit. They're not the only money lenders, that's, that's like an oversimplification, but they're, they're, they're important in money lending. And because of the aforementioned networks they have, the fact that a Jewish community in you know, Normandy will know uh, and correspond with letters with Jewish communities in, say, Rhineland in Germany, means they, actually, they have a comparative advantage in money lending, smoothing out risks. And so medieval rulers can benefit from Jews settling in their town, both just economically, these guys are bringing trade and commerce, but also um, through their money lending, their ability to, to lend money to the, to the king mm -hmm. or the ruler, and their ability to basically um, uh, act as, as fiscal agents. Because if you have Jews settling in your town and they're doing a lot of money lending, that's actually very easy to tax. Mm -hmm. And these, as we'll, we'll get to this, but medieval rulers really struggle to raise tax revenue. So they're very constrained fiscally. You've, um, they're not, they're only, only able to raise taxes on feudal dependents. There's a kind of a feudal norm that you, um, you, the king lives on his own. The king lives on his own property and land rather than kind of collecting direct taxes. So the Jews are way to kind of tax credit markets. As, and as the medieval economy grows, this develops. So Jews, become more important, their money lending becomes more important, and they become more important as fiscal uh, resources for the king. I see. So they're educated, they're good at finance, they're good at trade, uh, and they're useful as resources potentially for the state. Uh, a lot of your thesis and a lot of your theory hinges on the idea of state capacity, which you've already kind of alluded to. Can you just define this term for people who've never encountered it, encountered it before, including uh, economists who may not have encountered it before? Yeah, so state capacity refers to the ability uh, of a state to enact and enforce its, its policies and its rules. Mm -hmm. um, so usually we distinguish between two types of state capacity. Uh, the first being fiscal, um, because in order to do anything, a state has to be able to have revenue. So a state which is starved of revenue is going to be ineffective. That's kind of uh, the idea there. The second idea, the well, second component of fiscal of state capacity is administrative or sometimes legal capacity. And the idea there is the state has to be able to kind of create policies which can then be enforced. So it needs some kind of legal apparatus to say, you know, you're not complying with, with this edict or this rule. We're going to sanction you somehow. Uh, so that, that distinction, I think, it originates with Besley and Pearson, who wrote like, over a series of articles and a book on state capacity. Right. Um, and so state capacity, it's some, it's attracted some critics, but I think it's a useful term for thinking about distinguishing different types of states, a taxonomy between, you know, what we sometimes say are weak states or failed states and strong and capable states. Uh, it's not the same as the size of a state per se. Mm -hmm. So you see this with um, like the effectiveness of a state doesn't necessarily necessarily correlate with the, the you know the share of GDP of right. of, of of tax revenue. Uh, I think I mean I think it's quite interesting in the COVID nineteen crisis that there's a sense we have, and I'm not an expert on it, but we're, there's a sense we have that East Asian states, which are typically viewed as relatively high capacity, have been able to respond kind of quicker in terms of testing and containing the epidemic, whereas Western states, even though Western states actually often larger as a proportion of GDP have been much less able to, to respond effectively. So it refers to something like the effectiveness of a state. 
And likewise, it has nothing to do with democracy. It has nothing to do with authoritarianism. It's about the efficiency of the state. So an authoritarian state might have very different goals from a democratic state. And yeah. how efficient it is in carrying out those goals is what state capacity measures. Yeah, it doesn't speak to the um, to the to the, um, to the to the aims of a state, but mm -hmm. to its ability to enforce them. So something like corruption would impede state capacity, but right. autocracy could go either way. Right? You can have autocracies which are very effective and autocracies which are totally kind of feeble. Sure. So let's talk about your main theory in the book. Can you just explain this concept that you have of a conditional toleration and what happens to Jews under this conditional toleration equilibrium? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll explain that and I'll try and link it with a state capacity discussion. Um, yeah. So, so the, the key kind of um, idea um, motivating this concept is that in the modern in modern usage, we often use to tolerance as kind of a personal characteristic. So you're a tolerant guy, I'm a tolerant person, and we use tolerance to mean something like the same as religious freedom. So mm -hmm. everyone should have the freedom to choose their own religious belief. But the, the origins of a word, actually, as you, as one can tell just by looking at it, is like you tolerate something you might disapprove of, um, and so you tolerate something you think of as being bad or you you, you don't like. Um, so. What we observed historically is not the kind of cartoon or movie, Hollywood movie image of pre-modern saints continuously persecuting religious minorities. As we discussed, um, even though Jews experienced terrible violence in the Middle Ages, there are many, you know, the fact that Jewish communities survived and flourished for many centuries suggests this, this wasn't always the case. Um, so, so what's the right word to describe this? Well, conditional toleration gets to the sense that in both the Middle Ages and Europe, but also in other societies, also in the Middle East, which I'll discuss briefly, um, or in ancient, um, ancient societies like ancient Rome, the toleration was, was the norm, but it was always conditional. So you, you would be able to practice your religious belief to some degree, but you would have, it would be constrained. And there were things you could do which you could uh, lose that toleration. So in the Jewish case, Jews were not allowed to convert, ever. So Jews, a, Jew, a Jewish family could bring up their children as Jews, but they could not convert Christians. They could not proselytize to Christians. Um, they could not, a, a, a Jew could not marry a Christian um, unless they converted to Christianity. So that, so that would, so breaking those rules, like trying to proselytize to Christians or trying to circumcise a, a Christian, that would get you um, kind of punished pretty quickly throughout pre-modern Europe. So, so the idea is that they're, they're tolerated, but it's, it's in quotation marks. It's conditional. Sorry, um, you might have mentioned this already, but conditional on what? What's the toleration conditional upon? So that's going to vary from from state from from case to case. So mm -hmm. the it's going to be it's going to be conditional on the in some sense the goals or, or norms of of a state. So in in a medieval setting, so let's talk about the Jews. The the, the toleration. There's a there's a benchmark for toleration coming from this kind of Augustan position on the Jews, but then it's going to be conditional on firstly the, the state's ability to protect the Jews. So if there's a, an anti-Semitic kind of or, uh, mob or pogrom going underway, under what circumstances is the ruler go, going to protect them? Well, only if it's in his interest to do so. So that, mm -hmm. that's one element of conditionality. The other element is, is the Jews can't do anything which is going to offend either the, the ruler or other important members of a ruler's coalition. So the medieval equilibrium is one in which the, the church, the Catholic church, plays a crucial role in enforcing, um, the, well, 
in legitimizing political authority. So the, so the church is really crucial in, in like, you know, the king has to be coronated a certain way. He needs the backing of a church in order to be viewed as legitimate. So if the Jews were acting in a way which was kind of grossly offensive to the religious authorities of the time, that would also violate their... Um, mm. And so you see things like, um, you know, uh, Pope sometimes rail against um, Jews who, who employ Christian servants, for example. Right. Um, so that's, that's kind of what we mean by conditional toleration. Um, but it's an important concept because it gets to the sense that actually toleration is somewhat the norm rather than persecution. But the conditional toleration means it can always, um, it's fragile. It can switch to, you know, this, the, the conditions for toleration can be removed and you get persecution. And that's different to what we see in modern kind of liberal Western states. So modern liberal Western states, even though they're not, they don't approximate the ideal type of true religious freedom, they're pretty close to it. Um, you know, we don't think that um, Christians or Muslims or different or Jews or different religious denominations are in threat of losing their toleration. They're there, they can practice pretty much freely with, with some minor constraints on, on say, Islam. So this religious sanction that kings and rulers received in the Middle Ages, isn't this dependent on there being a strong church that could potentially act with certain with a certain amount of state capacity but on its own? Uh, yeah, that's that's that is indeed part of it. So this medieval equilibrium um, to kind of tie things up, it's one the, the state is fairly weak. So um, there's actually no term for say these are kind of these polities don't have a lot of um, tax revenue. They don't have professional armies. They're feudal, so they they raise armies kind of sporadically from their nobility, and so they govern in partnership with the nobles and with the church. So the church is pretty strong and powerful. The church is what's providing social welfare. So to, to, to the extent there is a welfare state, or what we would call a welfare state, it's the church, it's not the state. Um, so the church is quite powerful, and, yeah, and it, it, it's, it's, it's probably most powerful in the realm of ideology, in the sense that the church has a monopoly more or less on literacy until the 12th or 13th century, and it has a, a, a monopoly on kind of, um, yeah, I would say, I, I mean, ideology, I mean that in a non, uh, not in a kind of uh, normative sense, but so the church is, is very powerful and it has a, a lot of say in terms of deciding if the king is legitimate or right. not legitimate. Mm -hmm. um, and um, that gives them a lot of say in, in, in kind of uh, these religious norms. So a, a, a Christian ruler who's too kind of dependent on, on Jewish moneylenders or Jewish advisors, or uh, as we see in kind of Christian Spain, they might get some sanction from, from religious authorities. Um, similarly, rulers who are tolerant of heretics will get some sanction from religious authorities. Right. Now, a lot of your theory hinges on the idea that rulers are able to protect the Jews uh, under certain conditions, and when those conditions are not met, then you get persecution. And you seem to have confirmed that with some academic evidence. You look at some data between 1100 and 1800. You have a 2017 article with Warren Anderson and Noel Johnson in which you show that colder growing temperatures in Europe between 1100 and 1800 predict more persecution of Jews. 
The effect was strongest in weak states with poor soil quality, which, which appears to confirm your hypothesis. It's what we would expect. Uh, now, some scholars like Albert S. and Lindemann have examined these data on Jewish persecutions at the time and claim that many of the purported cases of anti-Semitic violence were actually just incidents of broader social unrest. So uh, that means if you replace Jewish persecutions with riots or revolutions, you might see a similar result. Uh, you find that bad economic times predict more anti-Semitic violence, but ostensibly, couldn't this just be picking up broader violence in society, not necessarily targeted towards Jews? So this is a great question. I, I know uh, Lindemann a little bit about his work. And I've, I've read one of his books, but I don't know the specific argument or the details of specific mm. argument. So I can't speak to, um, to his, like what data he's referring to, but I think it's a general kind of generalization which, which could hold for some places and not others. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the Black Death pogroms, so the Black Death pogroms are quite specifically targeted against Jews. Okay. Um, and then, so I, I, I mean, I think it's a good comment, but let me just say, and then empirically, what we can do is we can distinguish in our paper between uh, two types of persecution, basically a pogrom, which what's coded in our data is a pogrom, and what's coded in our data is an expulsion. Mm -hmm. And um, the expulsions do, are, are kind of precisely targeted against Jews. Sure, Those yeah. are more orderly, and we, we find similar results. Um, so I think it does hold just if you look at things which are definitely targeted towards Jews. But of course, you're right. Um, in more violent times, the conditional toleration equilibrium is kind of less likely to hold, right? Because the, the rulers could be less able to respond to, um, or he's going to be more willing to respond to a mob, less able to confront the mob, or less, or less able to provide order. So um, that story where violence comes in periods of economic downturns, I don't see it as directly opposed to our story. It, it could be complementary. Um, I do think it's important, though, for our story, where, where, where the story in our book really helps, though, is, is, is answering the following question. Okay, so there are riots and there's violence, and sometimes these are tax revolts, sometimes they target the landlords, sometimes they target kind of Jewish Jews and moneylenders, but why are so many of them, why, why are almost all, and I, as far as I'm aware, of these medieval riots, where there are Jews, they target Jews, right? Mm -hmm. So why, why don't they target like, some other group? Why, aren't, why isn't there, like, it just... Some target Jews, some don't target Jews. What it speaks to this specific equilibrium we're describing in the book. This condition, this, this, um, the conditions which gave Jews toleration by the late Middle Ages, mm -hmm. basically entangled them in a political economy of medieval states. So by uh, 1300 in Western Europe, there's almost nowhere where the Jews are just living there, kind of as not being kind of moneylenders or traders. Not all the Jews, some are doctors and uh, some are doing other occupations, they're craftsmen, but at least some members of the Jewish community are being tangled in this kind of uh, uh, fiscal system that the state's building around them. And that makes them kind of targets for, for these pogroms. And it's even more, I think it's even more um, kind of in some sense vicious or um, nasty than this in the sense that the, the entanglement of the Jews, which is kind of not a very design but by the state or nascent medieval kind of states is um is itself generating anti-semitism or it's it's cementing anti-semitic stereotypes right so, so, so the jews are kind of uh, the sponge with which the the ruler soaks up the tax revenue of a population that generates resentment towards the jews who are seen as kind of privileged or or rich uh but that 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 resentment then um, erupts in the form of this anti-Semitic violence, which the ruler often kind of doesn't really protect or doesn't do much about. 
Um, so that's how we see it. So I don't, I don't think it's directly, it could be complementary to this general point that um, Jewish violence mm-hmm. or persecution against Jews is part of a wider network of kind of rioting and tax violence. Uh, you know, you, I'm just going to skip ahead directly to the Enlightenment. So let's yeah. talk about the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment, you have said in the book, was a sea change in this, the way that this conditional toleration equilibrium held together. Uh, first of all, can you define what the Enlightenment is? Because uh, this is a subject of debate. It's a little bit murky. What exactly is the Enlightenment? Yeah, so the, the conventional definition uh, kind of is to firstly, when does it occur? Like the dating of that. Yeah. Um, conventional dating is kind of late 17th century, uh, fruit of the French Revolution. And um, one definition is kind of Immanuel Kant's, which is, uh, you know, dare to know it's mankind's emergence from his self-incurred immaturity. And so it's this idea of um, the birth of some kind of like, you know, uh, self-criticism amongst kind of Western intellectuals and elites. And it's often linked to secularization. So the idea that kind of religion is now being, is coming under, 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 under scrutiny. The way I see the Enlightenment is, Is, is kind of related to Jonathan Israel's um, work. Jonathan Israel, taught, you know, dates, dates it to Spinoza uh, as being kind of a critical figure here. And Spinoza both argues for um, kind of democracy, some kind of liberal democracy, and he also argues kind of dethrones um, scripture. Like so he, he, he offers the first biblical criticism. Let's have a radical view of the Enlightenment. Now, that's what is it? How does that matter? So. That's just how I view what the Enlightenment is based on my reading of a scholarship. But what does, the, what does this mean for our um, book? Um, so, so the Enlightenment, as, you've, as you, your question kind of suggested, it's, it's amorphous. It has many components. Uh, Joel McCare focuses on what he calls like the Industrial Enlightenment and links it to the Industrial Revolution. Jonathan Israel is much more keen on this radi- idea that's really much more radical than that. It's really criticizing... Um, uh, aspects of of, of of religion and the state. Um, there's also a discussion amongst the scholarship between different strands of the Enlightenment. So people will say the British or the Scottish Enlightenment is very mm. different from the French Enlightenment. So the Scottish Enlightenment is about the birth of economics. It's about David Hume, Adam Smith, liberalism. Um, whereas the French Enlightenment uh, has more radical thinkers like Diderot, and then it gives birth to kind of you know the French Revolution, which is a far more radical development when everything happens in Britain. Um, so I think the Enlightenment is an amorphous term, which can mean different things to different people. Um, from from perspective of our book, um, it is important, I think, that there's a that it undermines the church-state alliance. Uh, that's that's critical, and so that's that's a con- so it's this confining of religion to a more private sphere seems to be an important part of it for our book. And the way, why does this happen? So, so we can't take the Enlightenment as a, as um, as kind of a, a Deus Ex Machina. It's not necessarily, an, not really an exogenous event. We, we, we see it as, a, as kind of like, in some sense, coming together with the rise of, of, of more powerful states and states which are able to implement what we call general rules mm-hmm. as opposed to identity rules. And it's the, these more powerful states which make these Enlightenment ideas kind of credible and plausible. So the Enlightenment for us matters because of how it affects the political economy of Europe. And the view we take, and it maybe maybe we're pushing it this quite strongly, and like people who work at it from a different 
perspective or push back on us. But we we kind of a skeptical of a more traditional view, which ha which emphasizes this role of ideas. So that is to say, a, a more traditional view of religious toleration and religious freedom will see the Enlightenment as central because of Enlightenment criticisms of religious violence. So they'll mm. they'll look to um, Pierre Bayle in, in in the kind of late 17th century, John Locke arguing for kind of toleration amongst Protestants, and then someone like Voltaire. So Voltaire is, uh, you know, extremely prolific, widely published, hugely respected uh, polemicist and campaigner in the second half of the 18th century, arguing against religious, religious persecution, um, often by mocking and satirizing mm. his opponents. So like, a traditional view would say, like, but enlightenment is really important because of... Um, of the intellectual criticisms that the state and the church received. And that's what's pushing this move towards toleration. And our, our argument isn't to discredit that, because that's obviously true, it's obviously happening, but to say that what are the institutional foundations, which meant that Voltaire actually had an audience. Right. Now, this um, is interesting, actually, that you say this. You're saying that a strong state is a precondition for the Enlightenment ideals to actually be actuated in practice. This seems to actually go against the idea that a lot of people have about the Enlightenment, this classical liberal idea of a, of a small state and, and so on. So, so could you just explain that a little yeah. bit? Yeah. So yeah. It's, I think it's a very interesting discussion because... It's, uh, we're, in, we're basically biased or we're shaped by a modern view where you have the left and the right and yeah. uh, the left is a kind of big state, uh, progressive uh, set of ideologies and the right is, is kind of libertarian or classical liberal, small state, more freedom for the individual. And those definitions make sense and emerge after the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. If you're looking at the period before, it's hard to really make sense of them. For example, someone like Adam Smith, um, or to go, they're like fairly radical. And like, they're like, you know, they, they would be compared, if you compare them to the more kind of reactionary kind of church and state conservative types, Adam Smith is kind of, you know, radical, but he's a radical who wants to demolish the existing kind of mercantilist right. uh, fiscal system. So before the French Revolution, these distinctions are somewhat different. And the other thing is we're slightly biased by our kind of Anglo-Saxon perspective, where some of Mm -hmm. Whereas it's a little bit different on the continent. So on the continent, the French kind of philosophs and the French um, early economists who are pushing for deregulation often see the state as their ally in deregulating uh, the economy because the state has a state and the, these kind of early economists have a shared interest in say unifying grain markets or allowing grain markets to function and getting rid of local tariffs or local taxes or unifying um, uh, weights and measures. But so those types, so say uh, the fact that weights and measures varied across France in the 18th century basically gave local lords who got to set their own weights and measures the mm -hmm. ability to rent sink because they could they could choose weights and measures or define them in a way that favoured them and it would just allow them to skim off some revenue from from the peasants and when when the both the king both the absolute state and like liberal reformers have an interest in creating some kind of standardised measures um, so. Yeah, there's a basically. I, I, this is a huge topic. We could go into into a lot more detail, but this is to say, state capacity and the market are sometimes complements, sometimes substitutes. I see. Uh, and in this period, in the Enlightenment period, they were mostly mostly complements, um, but in other periods, they're going to be antagonistic or, or substitutes for one another. But the alliance uh, that one can distinguish in the 18th century is 
of the same people who are kind of pro, um, I mean, what we could crudely call pro-state capacity, are also ones place, putting in place kind of reforms which make religious freedom and other liberal rights more, more, more kind of, uh, uh, um, uh, yeah, more prevalent. So another example, going back to England a little bit earlier, is Oliver Cromwell. So Oliver Cromwell, uh, is he a good guy for liberalism or not? It's de it's kind of debatable, depends on your perspective. But he's the, he's the person who's instrumental in allowing the Jews to settle in England. You know, Oliver Cromwell's a good segue into this. How does the Enlightenment affect the conditional toleration equilibrium in Europe? Yeah, so exactly. The, so we talked about how important religion was in legitimating political authorities mm -hmm. in, the, in the Middle Ages. And that's for a host of reasons. With the Reformation and then the Enlightenment, that's 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 that becomes less and less important. So the value of religious toleration and oh, sorry, religious uh, legitimacy. So that is the, the legitimating ideological power that the Archbishop of Canterbury can give to the King of England. That declines between the Middle Ages and like the 17th mm -hmm. and 18th century. And so how how can rulers um, how do, how do rulers justify the fact that they have political authority? Well, they have to look to other things. They have to think about public goods or uh, representation. Like, you know, I'm a king and I'm, my, my, part of my authority comes from the fact that parliament appoints me or approves my, 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 my um, coronation. So there's a substituting away from religious legitimacy to other forms of legitimacy. And that unravels the equilibrium which, which upheld, which meant that, you know, that, that's, that unravels this medieval equilibrium and allows a new one to come, in, um, come into place. Um, so, and, and crucial to this is a move, this move towards general rules, I think I mentioned. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I can give you one example, I guess, who, who we rely on in the book several times. And this is a guy who might not be that familiar to kind of your uh, audience, but he's Joseph II, who's the the Habsburg Emperor and the Holy Roman Empire in the end of the 18th century. And so Joseph II is very important in terms of implementing Enlightenment reforms and actually creating the conditions for modern religious freedom in, in, in the Habsburg Empire. So he, he closes down a lot of monasteries, he, he kind of streamlines the Catholic Church. In Austria, he's a believer, he's not, a, he's not really a religious skeptic, but he streamlines the Catholic Church in Austria. He ends the persecution of Protestants, who were actually being persecuted in, in parts of the Habsburg Empire until like the 1770s. Not persecuted in a, in a mortal sense, not being killed, but they were suffering a lot of discrimination. They were, they were you know, they, they could be, they could, they were excluded from a lot of positions and jobs. They could be expelled from their villages. Uh, so they were suffering. And um, he, he extends toleration to Protestants. And then he basically um, so-called emancipates the Jews, which is um, some sense a two-edged sword because he both grants the Jews a lot of freedom, but he also ends their ability to self-govern, to govern themselves. So mm -hmm. he makes the Jews kind of citizens. They become liable for service in the army. They have to take German names. He, he doesn't allow them a lot of their special um, special laws we had previously, uh, but he grants some kind of the rights of modern citizens. So Joseph II is an important digger in this, but he's also a very relatively autocratic ruler who's really centralizing the Habsburg state, streamlining the fiscal bureaucracy, raising new taxes, reorganizing the provinces. And um, he's, a, you know, he's, he's an enlightened despot. And he kind of exemplifies what we think of as being a key driver of, uh, of the rise of, kind of modern states and, and religious freedom. 
That's interesting. And that also gets at the reason why you need a strong state to enforce this, right? Because once the Jews are no longer able to govern themselves, the state has to be able to protect the rights of every individual, I suppose, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's two-sided but in the sense that the state both, both is, takes on the responsibility of protecting Jews. And there's no, in this period, the Habsburg state is pretty strong. Then there's no, in, in, in the Habsburg Empire, there are no kind of major pogroms in, in his reign. Well, actually, there are some in this period in Poland, which is a much weaker state, for example. Um, but at the same time, he also takes on the ability to, to kind of govern the Jews. And so, uh, just to give you one example, uh, traditional Jewish naming customs uh, don't have permanent surnames, with some exceptions. So, you have a son of, your surname is, your, your, is, is, is like son of, you know, Isaac or son of Moses. Um, but he insists on, on, on standard German surnames. So, the Jews of kind of the Habsburg Empire and the Holy Roman Empire, uh, those parts of the Holy Roman Empire where he's governing, um, take on German surnames. Of this period, they actually have to bid for them. There's an auction, wow. and so um, the, the, the richer you are, the kind of a better surname you can you can bid for. It raises fiscal revenue, but it's really intrusive. So I'm not. I don't want to. I'm, this is not, in some sense, a normative book because many Jews actually resent these these impositions because they lose these rights of self-governance. They're incorporated into a modern state, and they lose something. But they also gain a lot. They gain access to modern education. They're admitted into the universities. They can, and, and so um, it has pluses and minuses. But if you want to understand like how we got where we are now, it's kind of important to, to understand, to, to study that process. Yeah, and you know, the advent of liberalism and the uh, expansion of enlightenment values has led to a decrease in persecution of religious minorities. Are you worried, I'm just curious, are you worried though about the so-called paradox of toleration? That is in tolerant societies, the intolerant are given a voice and if that voice is elevated enough, the society itself can descend into intolerance. Um, I'm generally a pretty robust believer in, in free speech yeah. uh, to quite to quite absolutist levels. So I, um, I'm, I, I kind of feel that that gets that particular paradox gets gets overstated. That mm. said, like the state should always be able to enforce a rule of law. Um, so, so, so that so the, 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 the area where we kind of, you know, the area where it gets complicated is, so I, so I believe in free speech, a presumption in favor of free speech, regardless of what you're saying. The issue is, is when you're calling for violence sure. or inciting violence, and then it becomes a, a, a police matter. And then you need a state, a state which is capable of protecting, um, uh, uh, you know, a liberal values has to be willing to act on this. So I, I think um, the Weimar Republic is often given as the case study for this kind of paradox yeah. of toleration. But the Weimar Republic, the problem with Weimar Republic wasn't that it was kind of allowing, you know, people to say, Nazis to say particular nasty, anti-Semitic or, or, or virulently racist stuff. The problem was it could not enforce order on, order on its streets and it mm. refused to do so. So you had both communist and Nazi kind of squads marching around on the streets and the police were unable to, uh, to, um, to stop that and, and imprison them. And the courts were unwilling to, to kind of sentence or sanction uh, people who were guilty of political murder. So, you know, SA street gangs who, who say, you know, got into a fight with, with, with communists and ended up being killing, the courts were not able to, to, to imprison these people or to really punish them. So I think the failure is there, failure of enforcing the law. Uh, not a failure, not a, not a problem of oh we ha we have we have to sanction people who say racist things. I think that's um, it's not. I, mean, I think a paradox dissolves on closer inspection.
That's fascinating. That leads me to my next question. You've, I think, clearly demonstrated that this conditional toleration equilibrium shapes the history of Europe uh, up until the Enlightenment. Does this apply anywhere else? Can you give some examples of where it would apply anywhere else? Yeah, so um, our view is, so, so let, me, let me take it one step back, which is to say the more conventional view, if you haven't read our book, more conventional view is to think it's just liberal values, right? So you yeah. get liberal values and then you get toleration. If it's just liberal values, then it seems quite plausible that in, say, another society, let's take the Middle East, you get people and they get liberal values, then you should get rid of just toleration and freedom, right? So all you have to do is educate people. They watch your BBC World Service, expose them to Hollywood movies, <laughs> sure. and then yeah, they, they're going to become liberal, right? But yeah. um, the Middle East is still in the conditional toleration equilibrium, well, in conditional toleration equilibrium. Yeah. It was throughout its entire history. So throughout the Ottoman, Ottoman period, you had Christians and Jews who were conditionally tolerated in, in the Middle East. They were able to you know, go about their everyday business, but they were not able to rise up the ranks of uh, bureaucracy or the... Uh, the army or the political system, they were not able to really proselytize or convert Muslims. So it's a similar situation to medieval Europe, different in some respects, but similar in others. And even after the end of the Ottoman Empire and the rise of like semi-modern states in the Middle East, it was actually fairly, it was still conditional toleration equilibrium in places like Lebanon or Iraq. In Iraq today, you, you kind of, you see the government is split always along, you know, Sunni Shia lines. Sure. Um, and you, you've had a terrible persecution of like religious minorities like Yazidis or Assyrians or Christians in the yeah. Middle East. So a, a lot of recent persecution of, of Christians. So our view is the, the, the institutional framework in the Middle East is still perpetuating a conditional toleration equilibrium where voting blocks are mobilized over, around religion. Religious leaders play important roles in legitimizing who's, you know, who's, a, political, who's a rightful um, political leader. And so it's unsurprising that there's both um, limited rights for kind of minorities, and then the states are weak. So the Iraqi state is very weak. It's dependent on kind of you know, uh, uh, Shia militias and the Sunnis basically defend themselves with Sunni militias. So unsurprisingly, a minority group like you know the Yazidis or uh, other groups can't defend themselves if they get become the subject of violence from say ISIS. Um, so I think the book does have a lot of insights for thinking about the Middle East. And in general, it's, it's saying you need the institutional framework. Uh, you need states capable of enforcing general rules as one of the preconditions for a liberal state. And um, so, yeah, in the Middle East, if you go, if you go into these societies and you, you, you demolish the state they have, don't think you can just rebuild a modern liberal state. You don't have the institutional prerequisites. You don't have the, um, the history to do that. I see. Let me change gears a little bit here and ask you a question that's more broad. What advice would you have those who are in undergrad who are thinking about studying economics in grad school? Yeah, so that's a good question. I did history and economics as, um, as an undergrad at Oxford, and that was a very good pre preparation for what I do now. It was not necessarily a great preparation for, for grad school in economics, mm -hmm. because as you know, grad school in economics tends to be very heavily into quantitative methods yes, and yeah. kind of modeling and, and mathematics. And um, so anyone who wants kind of an academic career as an economist has to kind of invest in those skills first and foremost, even though once they get to their research, then actually those skills are not necessarily of first order importance. And it's more important to kind of follow what you're interested in or kind of, you know, develop interesting um, 
topics which interest you. Basically, you're not going to succeed in research unless you're interested in a topic, uh, if, you know, if you find it fascinating. I think students today have a lot of advantages in the, the internet has made these resources yeah. available. So podcasts, kind of the interview, interview series you're running, uh, Cornelius, or um, online tutorials for different kind of statistical or econometric methods. It means you can teach a lot of stuff yourself. So I would be, I would, if I was an undergrad, I'd be um, studying as much as possible, that kind of stuff. So that I was pre very prepared for grad school. Uh, I see. Very briefly, what made you interested in a topic that you're interested in, that you're um, researching? So I... I think I was interested in these topics a long time ago. So as an undergraduate studying history, and um, it took a while for the actual research to come out because I didn't think I would necessarily be able to study these things as an economist. Actually, when I started grad school in economics, I wanted to do macro. Mm. Um, but it was, it was um, the fact that, you know, Oxford, uh, it was difficult to do macro and I, I, I kind of wasn't making a lot of progress. So I realized that actually I should do my comparative advantage. And I, but I was interested in these top questions a long time ago, but it took 10 years, a lot of uh, collaborative work with Noel Johnson, who's, um, you know, my co-author in a book, to try and work out kind of what we were saying. And, um, you know, we didn't necessarily, we didn't have this book in mind when we began writing papers on the topic, put it that way. Yeah, it's, it's a process. fantastic book. I highly recommend that my listeners look into it. Uh, we're getting towards the end of the interview now. I'd just like to ask you, where can we find you? Do you have a Twitter? Do you have a blog? Do you have a website? So I have um, uh, a Twitter page. So my Twitter handle, I think, is Mark Period Koyama, K-O-Y-A-M-A, at Twitter. Um, that's my Twitter handle. And I'm Barely, I'm fairly active, less active than I used to be. I'm fairly active on Twitter. And you can see from my Twitter profile, my, um, my homepage. So my homepage, if you Google me, is, um, is, is one of the first pages to come up. And I normally post both uh, academic articles and blog posts and other comments on, on, the, on, my home, on my homepage. Great. And I'll put all of that in the links to the description below. So thank you ever so much, uh, Mark, for joining us. I really appreciate it. It's been a great discussion. Thanks, Cornelius. Thanks. Um, yeah, it was great. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.